Welcome to Street Knowledge with Chris Graham. Welcome to the show, Chris Graham, Scott German. We're going to talk some UVA and ACC sports. And uh, Scott, maybe we should start talking basketball. Virginia's got the midweek off. Somebody has to uh, either have the midweek or weekend off, you know, as, as the accumulation of games. There's 15 teams in the ACC. You can't uh, match everybody up that way. So it's Virginia's turn. Get some time off, which means we can relax a little bit. No worries about this, the midweek, and Virginia's looking ahead to, to Boston College on Saturday. So, Scott, uh, some big stuff happened on Monday and Tuesday this week in the ACC that certainly has impact. Uh, we're getting towards the midway point of the ACC season. Duke losing Monday night, North Carolina winning last night. Uh, boy, there's you know it was, it's, it's been an eventful c- couple of days with some more games tonight. Yeah, um, we talked off the hour about – some of the the um, goings ons in the conference, and first of all, let's who would have ever thought Virginia Tech has two wins, seven losses, and their two wins are against Duke and North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> that that doesn't make a lot of doesn't register, but it is what it is. I hope he's that. Hopefully, they can build on that and. Um, or if you're a Hokie fan, hopefully you can build on that. Uh, and they play Syracuse Saturday. If Syracuse uh, is over that uh, uh, assault that happened on them last night in the final minute uh, in the uh, up in the formerly the Carrier Dome, then that's going to be a tough game for the Hokies. But you know we we talked about Monday night the the tangible effects of not having Coach K on the sideline was clearly evident in the last couple of minutes of the Duke-Virginia Tech game. And then last night, Carolina is still Carolina because there were some questionable calls that went against Syracuse um, that that literally handed the game over to, to UNC. So um, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's start with the Duke-Tech game. Tech, you mentioned, I mean, I, I think that's a great way to point it out. They're two. They're two and seven. They're two wins over Carolina and Duke. Um, folks down in Greensboro, Charlotte, wherever their wherever their offices are now, um, not happy about that as far as that goes. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the Hokie. I mean, they've been playing good basketball. We saw them in JPJ last week. They're not a bad team. They just had you know had an injury. The um, some issues there, lack of depth. Anyway, um, so all right. So yeah, the. Um, uh, there was a flop call fouled on, on Duke. Uh, you had some interesting observation on that flop call that was called on Duke. Uh, that That's right where it stood out to you the most, that Coach K is no longer on the sidelines and John Shire is. Yeah, it, you, you know, I, I said to you, if, if, if that game is played with Mike Krzyzewski standing on the sideline for 39 minutes, letting the officials know, every single play that didn't go his way, you, there is no one that can convince me that the officials on the floor calls that a flop because that official likes officiating in the ACC a whole lot better than he likes officiating at the YMCA on Saturday mornings. So he's not going to make that call. I, I, you can argue with me. I don't think you will, but you can argue <laughs> with me until the end of time. That call is not made with coach K on standing on the sideline. You just don't make it. No, no official is going to make that call. Well, then how about, uh, so in the last, what I think it was 13 seconds left when 
uh, MJ Collins, freshman, makes the uh, the go-ahead basket, as it turns out. It was a tie game, 75-75. He makes the basket, puts uh, the Hokies up 77-75. And innocent celebration, he turns around, he's you know throwing his fist in the air, and it just happens that Kyle Filipowski, the uh, star, star freshman for uh, – one of the star freshmen, but he is the star of the star freshman for Duke, happens to be standing right there, and the punch hits him in the throat. I mean – you couldn't have done it better if you were trying. And the poor kid, you know, Filipowski goes to the goes to the huddle. He's barfing in the huddle, and uh, the the, the uh, officials go to the replay, and there's no flagrant call there. I mean, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's it's probably not a flagrant. He didn't mean to hit him, but then he did. He, you know, whether he meant to hit him or not, he punched him in the throat. And so you, I, I will go with what you had to say there, Scott. I mean, if Coach K's on sidelines, that's that's a flagrant foul. Oh, absolutely. Again, those referees get paid very well to referee to to officiate in the ACC considerably more than what they would make if they call that with Seth with Coach K on the sidelines uh, officiating YMCA games on Saturday because that's where they would be at it. Well, that takes us no, to it the, was it wasn't intentional, but I mean, it wasn't intentional. It's still a flagrant foul, just like the 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 uh, the flop last night um, was was not. A, it, I mean, he may have been hit. It may have. He. I think he did. I think there was some contact there, which if you, I, I was listening to one of the show, one of the newscasts afterwards. And supposedly the intent of that new rule is if there is contact, even the slightest contact, you don't make that call. Is that correct? Well, I think we're talking about. So you're talking about now the uh, the end of the Syracuse oh, yeah, game. Yeah, which yeah. is which is yeah we got which we got to talk about because in the context of um, the 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 no call on flagrant on a what turned into being a punch in the throat. Um, at the end of the Syracuse UNC game, so Syracuse was up 68 66. And um, then uh, there was a foul on a dunk attempt. Carolina made one free throw. They missed a second one. The Syracuse kid tries to save it and bounce under the basket. Cardinal rule, you don't do that. Uh, the, the free throw shooter, Nance, actually picked it up, made a, made a little layup, put them ahead. So then uh, Syracuse calls timeout, drives down the floor, and the young freshman whose name uh, I, I'm I, don't have right in front of me here. Um, the the freshman dri- is driving to the basket. It's it's probably a charge. I think it's it could go 50-50 on whether that's a charge or a block. Uh, but not only was a charge called, which gives possession to North Carolina, then if you're Syracuse, you try to steal in the backcourt. If not, you foul. You know, you're still in the game, even if he makes both free throws. There was actually a, a review, and the officials decided because um the, the young man inadvertently hit the the Carolina defender with his elbow in the head. That not only was it a charge, but it was a flagrant two, and they got two free throws in the ball back inbounds. So Monday night, Virginia Tech kid, whether he meant to or not, punched a guy in the neck. No foul, no no flagrant foul. Uh, set Tuesday night, Syracuse kid while trying to make a basketball play inadvertently hits the Carolina defender with an elbow. What could have been a 50-50 charge block turns into a charge and a flagrant foul, and pretty much the game's over. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which I kind of guess it, it just means the more things change, the more things things stay. Because uh, Jim Bayheim's on the sidelines there. Now, he looked like, uh, you know, I, I won't say it as colorfully as I did when we were talking on the phone, but he looked like 
He looked like his lunch got stolen. His dog got run over after get, when the game was over. He, he, he wasn't mad. He wasn't fired up. He wasn't yelling at officials. He looked like a guy that just kind of thought, why did we go to the, why did we move to the ACC all those years ago? Yeah. I think it's time for Jim at seven o'clock on weeknights to be sitting in front of the TV watching jeopardy and wheel of fortune. Yeah. yeah, uh, and, He's and not intimidating anyone on the sidelines nowadays. Uh, um, but you know, it kept the, 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 the foul last night against Carolina, the calling out a flagrant, I was screaming at the TV to, that's ridiculous. Why are you having this unnecessary interruption delay in the game? Because it's not a flagrant foul. And lo and behold, they come back and call it a flagrant foul. That's that essentially ends that game. Well, then the next, so the kid only made one or two free throws. Um, the, the next play was an inbound in the backcourt. So, uh, North Carolina's trying to throw the ball in bounds. Now, Syracuse had been giving North Carolina trouble with its full-court press. <laughs> Virginia fans know this. Virginia fans are used to Syracuse full-court pressing and giving trouble. They do a good, great job with it. Um, the the uh, inbounds pass, there's a foul called on the Syracuse kid. Um, he, I mean, the replay showed it clear, even live, but the replay showed it clearly. Syracuse kid was flung to the floor, and he was called for the, a foul. His fifth foul knocked him out of the game. So, I mean, heaping insult upon injuries is what that is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't believe in the conspiracy theory, but uh, protecting the shield is still very much alive in the ACC. Right? You don't believe in a conspiracy theory, except that we, except that we do. Except that we're 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 promoting that for the first we're seven or eight it. minutes of this podcast. So, right. uh, other right. than that, we don't believe in it, right? That's right. That's right. So, to move off of that a little bit, I was reading a story today. And it made me think, I was reading a little bit about Tony, uh, Coach Bennett addressing, actually addressing the diminished role, or I won't say role, but I mean, that's essentially what it is. The diminished minutes for, for Shedrick and Kafaro, um, and basically telling them, you know, stay focused, stay encouraged. To me, again, that's just lends to the, brilliance of Tony Bennett because if you look at I know we've gone small lineup the last four what four or five games maybe doing the whole five game winning streak where uh, four of the five games four of the five games but if if you look at some of the games coming up especially the game down in Chapel Hill I don't see that small lineup being able to 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 handle Baycott and, and Nance I think that Cedric and Kafara are going to still have roles to fill and I think that that's the genius of Tony Bennett is he knows he understands that small lineup's not going to work every time out I'm going to disagree with you I think the small lineup is here to stay uh I think if 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 there were two games recently where that it could have gone away the really the second game of the streak here well the third game of the five game winning streak second game of the streak of four of small ball Florida State plays a big lineup uh he sent Vanderplas out there in the lineup uh starting lineup for Virginia play a lot of minutes that day uh, Wake Forest, uh, they're starting center 7-1, back up 7 feet. They're starting power forward 6-10, back up a 6-10. Uh, so, so, so big guys. I mean, you know, 7-foot seven foot, seven, seven foot 6-10 guys, and he still went with with uh, Vanderplas, Gardner, and Dunn. Um, if you go away, I think the reason you don't go away from it is it's working, one, on both ends. Offensively, obviously it's working. Uh, Vanderplas, uh, uh, as a, at the 5 position, stretches the floor. Um, he doesn't need the ball in the post. He doesn't need to hang around the post. 
um, to, to do things. Uh, and, and that opens up the driving lanes for the, for the three guards, uh, uh, Beekman, Clark and, and Franklin. And they've been taking advantage of that. Sh- uh, Shedrick needs to be in the post. And if he's standing on a three point line, even if he's out there as, as a decoy, his defender is still going to be in the post. So he's not dragging his defender out, whereas Vanderplas drags his defender out with him. I think if anything changes, it's that Ryan Dunn starts ahead of Jaden Gardner. I, I don't, I, I, you know, the fact that Virginia played well against Wake Forest down there against a big lineup. Uh, in fact, I mean, the first game of the streak was against uh, North Carolina the, uh, of the of the small ball streak. I know it wasn't Baycott, but they had that Jalen Williams is going to be Baycott next year, and he had a he was had twelve points, five of seven in the first half shooting against Caden Shedrick second half against Vanderplas who he you know Vanderplas gives three inches up to him Vanderplas held him to one point on 04 shooting um Vanderplas is a better defender than Shedrick there's no doubt about that and uh the offense now so Scott I did an analysis yesterday there's a website called evanmaya.com uh that uh among the subscription sites that I access um where you can look at lineup analysis you can actually you know look at how five-man lineups do uh, offensively, offensive efficiency wise, defensive efficiency wise, Virginia's best two lineups are with Vanderplas uh, at center. Uh, their their second best lineup is is Van. Oh, excuse me, the first best lineup is Vanderplas and Dunn together on the floor. Second best lineup is the four guard lineup with Vanderplas at center. Um, I think I think Shedrick's minutes, uh, Shedrick and Caffaro Caf- uh, are going to get minutes if Vanderplas gets into serious foul trouble in a game. Uh, they're they're in there, but when when they're in there, Virginia is not going to be as good. Who's this Caffrey you speak of? Well, remember uh, we we learned uh, when was was that was the pit game? I think it was. We learned that we'd been saying his name wrong for four and a half years, and he had been letting us say it wrong for four and a half years. Yeah, uh, and so now, is every uh, broadcast announcer and every uh, every PA announcer and every uh opposition's home floor so well yeah. well the the pa announcer at virginia uh hasn't had to say his name much he did have a basket did he have a he had a basket down at wake so the wake guy the wake pa announcer probably had to say his name um you know he's just not getting minutes he he has three dnps in the last six games uh but yeah they have to get it right no um you know that's one of those things and, and really since the pronunciation went to Caffaro, he hasn't been the same so i'm i'm thinking he needs to go back honestly. yeah i believe he does so so what you're saying essentially is cuz you you're the analytics guy and i'm looking at things just from the eye test is that you're saying that we probably stick with that small lineup even against a big team like carolina because uh we can't slow baycott down more in the paint than having Cedric out on the perimeter can slow down our offense. Well, actually, too, um, Shedrick is not a good one-on-one ball defender. I, when I look at the deep, when I do the deep dive analytics on the Synergy Sports website, um, he allow, now it, it, this number is not bad to say the least. He allows opponents to shoot forty-three percent from the floor. You'll be floored when you hear the number I tell you that that Vanderplas allows his his guy to shoot from the floor twenty-two percent. Um, I don't know if you, if you remember, Scott, after the Carolina game, uh, one of the reporters asked Vanderplas to talk about his strategy guarding Jalen Williams after Williams had that big first half against uh, Shedrick. Um, he said his strategy was to, all right, he, know, he knew he was going to get the ball in the post. His job was to make it so that um, he didn't get set up on the block, basically right there at the, at the side of the lane. 
that he caught the ball as far away from the block as possible so that whenever he started his move, you know, there might be help from either a guard or a post-to-post double, or if nothing else, he's just got a few more feet to work before he gets to the rim. And what that said to me when I when I heard that, read that, thought about that, Vanderplas knows how to play post-defense. Caden Shedrick gets a lot of block shots, and he gets, you know, and so we, we, we tend as media people, if guys who get steals, guys who get block shots, those are counting numbers. Those guys must be good defenders. Shedrick gets his block shots because he doesn't block the guy he's guarding. He doesn't block Baycott if he's, uh, you know, going well. He blocks Baycott. mistakes. He blocks mistakes. If a guy gets past a guard, he goes he goes backside and blocks that shot. So Vanderplas doesn't block shots. He doesn't need to block shots. He keeps his guy out of getting good shots. So he's a better defender in the post. He's certainly a better offensive option. That's why I think that Ryan Dunn starts at the four. If you're, if if I'm coach, and I think Bennett's going to do this eventually, Coach Bennett's going to do this eventually. That whether it's Boston College or sometime soon, Ryan Dunn, similarly to Vanderplas, Dunn can knock down the three. He's not Vanderplas in terms of productivity quite yet, but he can knock down the three. As a result, if if he's standing out there wide open. His defender's not hanging out in a lane like he would be with Shedrick. His defender's got to go out there and respect his ability to make the three. And then defensively, he's head and shoulders above Gardner defensively. So I think sooner rather than later, Dunn's starting. I don't, so that's, to me, the only change. I don't think you go back to the big lineup. I think that Shedrick and, and Caffaro are there as – basically, you got your seven-man rotation. You get you got your five starters. you got McNeely off the bench. you got Dunn off the bench. And then – uh, Shedrick and Caffaro are there if one of the bigs or both of the bigs get in foul trouble. Yeah, I, and and I and I, I'm not saying that I that I would think that I would agree that that Tony changes that lineup for one game. First of all, that game's not just right around the corner; it's a while down the road yet. Um, the other thing that you have to be concerned with is that Shedrick and Poppy didn't exactly control Baycott last year in either game. The one, the game down in Chapel Hill, uh, Baycott had 29 points and 21 rebounds, and combined, uh, Shedrick and Caffro had two points and two rebounds. Yeah, so um, you could put me and you out there against him, and, and at least it'd be something different. Yeah, you know, they we, might feel sorry for us. Yeah, we could uh, take a couple of charges. He he would elbow us in the face and get a flagrant foul just because we're a foot shorter. Yeah. <laughs> um. Vanderplas probably going to play a lot. I wonder about fouling in the paint if he's if he's in actually down in the paint a lot. Well, he got a foul early in the game um, against Wake Forest, and so Tony did with him what he does with anybody who gets a foul early. He he, he took him out, uh, but um, Dunn came in for him. Uh, then when uh, Dunn needed to be uh, replaced, just for minutes, you know, standpoint to get some rest, Caffaro came in. Interestingly enough, he came in before Shedrick did. Um, so no, he's, he's still going to play it that way. That's why I say foul trouble. If, if foul trouble becomes an issue, um, that's why, that's why he's telling Shedrick and Caffaro to be, be, to be ready, not because they're going to go start or, or, you know, and play 30 minutes it's to, Hey, we're going to just like team Murray needs to be ready. If there's, you know, if some, if there's an in-game injury or, you know, we had four fouls with both of our point guards at Wake Forest, um, he, Murray didn't get in the game there, but I mean, just in case there's something, Murray is, is the is the next guard off the bench, and he's not going to get a lot of playing time. But be ready because you might you might get your name called. Yeah, and and that's that seemed to be kind of Tony's uh, agenda to make sure that these guys that were getting some reduced time 
stay focused because there could be it could it could happen anytime, you know, that they that they're all of a sudden out there and counted upon for 15 to 20 minutes again. Think of Evan Nolte back, what was that, 2015? <laughs> the team that Justin it, it was undefeated for a long time, ended up, you know, losing in the second round of the tournament, NCAA tournament, but uh was like 20, 19 and 0. I think they were 28 and 2 at the end of the regular season. Well, anyway, Justin got hurt in like the 20th or 21st game and they had to play with so Evan Nolte went from not playing at all to starting at the four and was actually playing pretty well. I mean, so yeah, Tony is Tony's good at finding guys. Um, Darion Atkins didn't play for he redshirted a year, didn't play for three years, and then he comes in and starts the fourth year and played great. So Guys, yeah, in, in Tony's in Tony's system, uh, I'm trying to think. There was another example of that. Um, uh, oh, oh uh, uh, was it Marco Anthony that had to come in a game, a, a game or two, and that might have even been around the same time as um, uh, Justin Anderson getting hurt. He, I remember Anthony came in after not playing even garbage minutes, and then had a, a double digit game against Louisville in one game. Be ready. That's the message from Tony because. Uh, if I call on you, I need you to be as good as the guys I'm replacing that you're, that you're replacing. So, what do you think? Uh, what do you think is going to have to happen for Jaden Gardner to get on track, or uh, or can he? I mean, I, I, he's he's his numbers are interesting when you look at him. Okay, he's last year he played 32.7 minutes a game. This year he's playing 23.4, so he's playing a lot less. He's still averaging 10 points a game, 10.1 points per game. Uh, last year in 32 minutes, he averaged a 15.2. So from a points-per-minute standpoint, he's not far off. He's actually shooting better from the floor than he did last year. He's shooting 51.4 right now from, from the floor. He shot 50.1 last year. Um, so um, it's he's, 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 he's in the game less, not because he's not effective offensively. I think it's because Dunn is better defensively. Um, and if you've got Vanderplas in at center, you've got offense taken care of. I don't know what he can. I think I think Gardner. If, if it was me again, and I and I and I'm kind of projecting myself on Tony and thinking Tony's Tony and his staff. He's got people on his staff who look at these numbers just like I do, and they look at it a lot better than I do. I'm just kind of glimpsing when they're they're studying these kind of things. If if I do move, so if I've got my lineup as being Beekman and Clark at point guard, basically two point guards, Franklin as the third guard. Um, if I've got Dunn as my pow starting power forward and then Vanderplas as my starting center, and then I go with Gardner as my first big off the bench, and then I go with McNeely as my first guard and really only guard off the bench in, in ideal situations, think about what that lineup is. The two guys you're bringing in the game off the bench, Gardner and McNeely, are offensive-minded guys. They're guys who can, you know, guard, so, so McNeely obviously with his three-point ability, Gardner with his mid-range ability, you know, I think in, in bunches, th that can be tough. I mean, and Gardner going against a second unit instead of against a first unit. I mean, we see guys in the NBA who make a, a living and make millions of dollars um, as leading the set. Malcolm Brogdon right now with the Boston Celtics. You, you making, making a lot of money achieving a, at a high level against the second unit guys uh, and taking advantage of the fact that you, you, you should be a starter, but you know, you can score at a level against the you know guys who sh who who can't guard you because they're second unit guys. So, um, I think Gardner can be very effective in that role for 18, 20, 22 minutes a game. And if you give Dunn thirty minutes a game like he's been getting lately defensively, you're you're a better team overall. So, 
That's that's where I, that's why I think that could be. And I think so. He's effective already. I don't think he needs to get off the schneid. I think he's he's doing fine. It's just that he's not the better option, maybe because overall the the game that Dunn plays is a better overall game. Yeah, you know you're right that, that his numbers don't aren't that terribly different than last year. He was very productive against Virginia Tech. Yes, he was. Five six or four, twelve points. Um, yeah, yeah. I just don't see him attacking the basket as much. And and I don't know if that's his, I don't know if that's something he can do, but it just seems like when he attacks the basket, he either draws a foul. He goes to the foul line a lot. Um, he's got a lot of moves. He's, you know, he's, he handles the ball well. Um, um, maybe he's just tightened up a bit because he's got more options out there, you know, around him. When I look at the, the uh, uh, sportsreference.com, basketballreference.com can give you f- per 40 minutes numbers. So his per 40 minutes numbers last year, 18.8 points, 7.8 rebounds per game. His per 40 minutes this year, 17.2 points, 8.0 rebounds per game. He's he's pretty much right there. Yeah. Um, it just probably just, looks – it probably seems a little less because there's more firepower around it. There's more guys. That's right. I mean – you know, we're seeing, for example, I mean, uh, along those same lines, we're seeing the most effective, most efficient Kia Clark that we've seen in his five years, including his first year when we won a national championship. He's averaging career best in points. Um, he's just under his career best in assists, but he's also his career, his, his uh, tur- uh, assist to turnover ratio is by far his best, almost three to one there. He's shooting career best from the floor, from two point range, from three point range. Um, we are seeing the absolute best out of Kia Clark, and it's again because like last year, you know, you you had, you had basically five guys who could produce for you, maybe four guys who could produce for you, um, and Gardner and Clark were two of those guys. Now there's so many guys who can do it out there that you don't need so much from you know any individual one guy. As a result, they can be more effective, more efficient, and we're seeing that out of Gardner in fewer minutes. Now Clark's playing the same amount of minutes, but he's not having to shoot the ball as much. Um, and he's just more effective. So that's the the influx of talent has helped both those guys be more efficient. Yeah, it's just going to get it's going to get more every uh, next year. There's a lot of talent coming in. Yeah, I mean, we're hearing that the um, the the transfer point guard, uh, the Georgetown kid, uh, that is on now. He's he's actually he would be eligible to play now. He because he he. Um, didn't enroll at Georgetown in the fall. He has enrolled. He's already in classes at Virginia here uh, in the spring semester. Uh, but he, he's, he's, for obvious reasons, chose to redshirt because um, there'd be no playing time for him if he was. You don't want to waste a year of eligibility on, on not playing much. But um, what we get, what we hear is that through the grapevine is that he is, um, you know, what, what, so everybody's got what Virginia calls their, their scout team, the green team, and that. Uh, his his play on the green team as the point guard against Reese Beekman and Kia Clark uh, has been very noteworthy and to a point where it's actually helping the team out because uh, it's really raised a level of play for that green team. Yeah, and it's, hey, look at the it, – it's not a coincidence. We're, what, on a five-game win streak? When did he join the team? Yeah. So, yeah. and we know that Tony Bennett practices, they get after it. Uh, if they don't, they don't play. So, from from my, I don't like to call it through the great man. I like to refer to it as our intel. Is that he has elevated the, the scout team, the green team, the greenies, to a point where when the 
actual game comes around, it's often it's often easier <laughs> <laughs> for 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 Beekman and for Franklin. I mean, he was the he was the big East tournament MVP just you know eighteen months ago. So he's a high level. He's he's going to be a high level player at Virginia. He already is, obviously. Scott, we were talking about this. You know, it reminded me of so Malcolm Brogdon got injured as at the end of his first year EVA. He had to sit out his second year. He got better as that year went on, and and Tony just made the decision: Hey, we're not going to waste your re- a whole year of you to play a few games. We're going to redshirt you. So and, and then a guy named Anthony Gill also had to redshirt that year. He transferred in, and back then transfers didn't get to play right away. Those two guys were the green. Those two guys led the green team. Um, and uh, I, re- I remember Joe Harris was first team All ACC that year. And I remember when we were interviewing him about being named first team All ACC, he said, "I'm not even the best player on this team." Um, those two guys are the other two best players on this team. Um, they're all three in the NBA, of course, now. But um, that 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 stood out. I mean, yeah practice we don't think about that fans you know, scott do you think about and we don't think about practice we don't practice alan iverson practice but that's where you get better and this that guy is so interesting the fact that he transferred in when he did is helping make this team better well and we know under coach bennett practice is where you earn playing time <laughs> that's right that's right simple as that he so didn't I, roll the ball out there <laughs> say, so before we change subjects because i know we're a little condensed on time here um the two questions about Dante Harris comes that comes to mind. One tongue in cheek is why in the world would someone want to leave that illustrious program like Georgetown? Hey, they just beat DePaul. <laughs> uh, so I'll ask that question again. Why would anyone want to leave Georgetown? And they snapped their 29 game Big East losing streak being DePaul the other How day. does Patrick Ewing survive a 29 game losing streak? Conference losing streak. I can't imagine him surviving this season. I really, and I don't know how he got to this season, much less. He had that one run where, and which Dante Harris led. Uh, he, he, uh, you know, they, they were uh, under 500 going into the Big East tournament. They won the Big East tournament. They won four games to win the Big East tournament. And that saved his job that year. But I think they were six and 24 last year. And, they, and six and 24 would be in, a, would be um, leaping ahead of their pace right now for this year. Um, yeah, it's, it, you know, Georgetown, it's hard. You know, Scott, you were at the Washington Wizards game the other night. Um, I watched the game on TV just so I could converse with you about it. And during the game broadcast, they had John Thompson the third on. And he didn't talk about Georgetown at all, but I'm, I was thinking the whole time, they fired John Thompson the third to get to Patrick Ewing. John Thompson the third took them to a Final Four. You know, he had a couple of subpar seasons at the end of his run there nothing like what Patrick Ewing's doing. And they got rid of him real quick. They've, they've given Patrick Ewing a lot of rope. I, I don't get it myself. Uh, I don't either. And, um, you know, from having been at a Wizards game recently, talking to one of the um, staff, one of the uh, t- um, ushers about that, I'm not even – Georgetown doesn't even play all their home games in the Capital One Center now. They oh. often play on campus. Yeah. And they have a hard time filling a 3,500-seat um, arena. So can you imagine what a game would look like in a, in, a, in the Capital One, 23,000 seats, 24,000 seats? It would be – it would just be a, an embarrassment. Man, how the – what – that that was – that's probably one of the most catastrophic fall-offs in college basketball. Oh, because yeah, they were they were so good in the '80s. I mean, and really all the way through again. John Thompson the Third 
had a good run there. Um, I can't think of anyone that even comes close to that. Could you? No one. No, because I mean, you think about the, you know, the UCLA's of the world. UCLA is at least passable. I mean, you know, they they're they're very good some years. They're even when they're bad, they're not terrible. They're 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 you know near the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, I can't think of, I, I really can't think of any, but Houston with fly, the fly slime, a giant Lama years, they went through a, a stretch where they weren't good. They're very good now, obviously. So no Georgetown's fall. Off, and I don't know where you go from here. I don't know how you rebuild that. Not, I don't, I don't know if you do, uh, because the big East that they play in now is nothing like the big East with Syracuse and Pittsburgh and, and Villanova. Those teams are gone. So, um, you know, Georgetown is uh, Georgetown is probably never going to reach that level of play again. So, so unfortunately, now we we've, we've had a half an hour or more of talking about something very pleasant. Now we have to shift gears and talk about something that's not pleasant, <laughs> yeah. and that's Virginia football. And Chris, I can't tell you how disappointed. I was earlier this week when I learned about Marcus Hagan's leaving because now it's personal because you and I both have known Marcus for a long time. And there's no one that represents UBA football uh, better than on this current staff than Marcus Hagan. And you can say Chris Slade, but Chris is a newcomer. Chris is Marcus is a veteran of assistant coaches. Chris is there's some that say maybe Chris is just doing this as a something to do. Marcus was on a career path in this and to to walk away, we know why why he's doing it, and strategically it makes great sense, but it still hurts to see him leave Virginia football. Yeah, and I've been getting some flack from some people uh, over the column I wrote about this, explaining exactly why he's leaving. I mean, I know, you know, he, he's not going to tell anyone on the record, I'm leaving because I want to get the st- – I mean, I, 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 the my language I use was get the stink off of him. Well, I mean, that's true. That's, that's, but, not, that's exactly true. He's never going to admit to that to a media person, but it's 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 why he's leaving. I mean, yeah, some people wrote, "Oh, he's leaving because, you know, the what happened in November, and two of the two of his guys were there." Um, that would be more reason to stay, uh, if anything else. He's a UVA he's a UVA alum. Uh, he's he's got an undergrad degree, a graduate degree. He's been on the staff for twelve years. He's married to a, a, a you know former UVA I think volleyball player, right? Um, so, right. you know, the, the, everything about the man is UVA. If, if anything, what happened in November would keep him there um, to be part of the healing process. But, you know, a, a, another side of this is exactly how I explained in the column, Scott. And we talked about it before I wrote the column that uh, that he he is going to be a head coach someday, a power five head coach. And he's not going to be an FCS head coach. He's going to be a power five head coach someday. That young man, if you've talked with him for a minute, if you've talked with him for an hour, you you know he is going to be – he is that organized. He's got lots – he's he's there. He's got everything about head coach written all over him. But if he stays at Virginia and and things happen the way they're going to happen the next couple of years at Virginia, he's not going to be a head coach anytime soon after that because if you're part of a staff that, you know, gets run out of town, um, you don't get to be the head coach. I mean, I think I think him moving to Penn State, uh, where he'll get to go and work under a very successful head coach, James Franklin, uh, who had success at Vanderbilt, has had great success at Penn State. Um, will give uh, it'll give Marcus a chance to work under you know someone new outside of Virginia, um, you know because he's been under Mike London, he's been under Bronco Mendenhall, and then one year of Tony Elliott, and also um, 
it, you know, the two or three years or however long he's gone, um, it, it'll, it'll just reinforce that we need to make a change and we need to go back in the direction of someone like a Marcus Hagans. And he's, I think he's, I think he's put himself in position to be the next head coach of Virginia in two or three years. Yeah, I agree. I think it's strategically, it was the right decision because as you just said, if he stays with this program and this program continues in the direction that we, we think it is, we hope it's not, but, but it is, but it is, I think I sent you an email that I projected that by the time coach Elliott gets shown handed his walking papers, which we speculate would be sometime in October of 2024, correct? Uh, His career record at Virginia is going to be somewhere around six and 24, which means between the start of next season and 10, eight to 10 games, eight, eight or so games into the 2024 season, he's going to be three and 17. Yeah. And that's, that's not good. And, Marcus has got to know those numbers as well as we do, probably better. I'm and trying see, to think where the three wins come from. I was just getting ready to say the three <laughs> wins might be a stretch. It might be uh, a stretch. Unfortunately, I hate to say, I hate to laugh about it, but yeah. Uh, we're, we're in for some, a lot of football, a lot of bad football. And, um, and uh, Marcus knew that Marcus is an extremely intelligent young man. And he knows from a career standpoint, he would be committing suicide hanging on with this program. And that's why a guy who is as orange and blue literally as anyone alive or dead, he, he, he probably challenges Thomas Jefferson in that respect. I mean, again, two degrees himself. His wife has a degree. He played for four years. He was a, he was a wide receiver, punt returner, quarterback. Um, he's been a coach for 12 years under three different regimes um, for him to leave is a sign this this isn't this isn't good news for anyone i mean if there were people trying to comment to me send me emails trying to spin this as something positive for for virginia football going forward there's nothing positive for virginia football going forward because it's a sign it's a guy who has everything invested in virginia football saying i can't be there's no there's no path to success by me staying here I'm curious to 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 learn what would be the thought process of why this would not be detrimental to UVA football. How could this be? Who's trying to spin that as a positive, and how? Yeah, because how? for Penn State to take him on as their wide receivers coach and offensive uh, recruiting coordinator um, is a sign that a program that competes every year for Big Ten and national championships says he is one of the best wide receiver coaches in college football. We've already known that. We knew that for years at Virginia. Um, and now Penn State is saying, we think we think he's one of the best wide receiver coaches in college football. Um, I mean, I threw it out to you, Scott, I think when we were chatting. I didn't write this in the column that I wrote, but to me, what could have been an interesting choice for him is if Tony Elliott had said, because, I mean, we we talked about this at length. We've both written about this that we're, we, we thought going into the end of the season that uh, Des Kitchings would no longer be the offensive coordinator after his one season, disastrous season as offensive coordinator. He still is. So um, that's that's a surprise, and it's also a disappointment for me and for you and for lots of people. But if, if, if Tony had said, all right, I'm getting rid of my offensive coordinator, 
uh, Marcus, I want you to be the coordinator. I want you to be the play caller. I want you to put it all together for me. It doesn't change necessarily that things are still heading in an awful direction for Virginia football the next couple of years. But if you're Marcus, you got to say, man, chance to be a power five coordinator. That would have been an interesting choice. Yeah, I, I think if that would have been the decision, then Marcus would still be at UVA. He's not, yeah, yeah. Maybe because, reluctantly. Because but it, it had a great season. Yeah. And, and and here's the thing. The bar is so low on what you, what you now would label next year as being a great season. <laughs> We're talking about if the offense was somehow or another improved over last year and maybe I've – I'm sure that we would say a great season for UVA football next year. Chris is going to be six and six. Oh, I'd go. I'd go with maybe five and seven. I'd go four and eight's a good season, and five and seven might be borderline great. Yeah. So Marcus <laughs> would know that. Yeah, yeah. And think that that alone, if he had to leave Virginia to eventually come back to Virginia, that could be his ticket instead of going somewhere as a yeah a wide receivers coach. He could get a gig as an offensive coordinator. Yeah, and, it, you know, I, I say that you look at what Virginia's got on defense. John Rosinski turned things around. I mean, what the problem last year wasn't the defense. The, the problem in 2021 was the defense. If there's any semblance of offense, they're not 3-7 and seven, uh, on November 12th. Uh, they're 6-4, they're 7-3. and four, seven and three. So um, if if the defense is, is close to where they were, you know, in 2022 and 2023, if the offense can just improve marginally, you know, there could be some, they could sneak some wins out of that. So, yeah, uh, even though there's not a lot to work with, the, the offensive line's gone, you know, the quarterback's gone, the receivers are gone, um, the, the, everybody, everybody's gone. Um, if you could put it together and just not screw up, you know, as much as, as the group did last year, yeah, he could be part of, of getting it turned around. And he's only 40 years old. He doesn't need to be a head coach right away. If he's an offensive coordinator and has success um, for, for five years, you know, maybe he ends up being the head coach because of his success there. But no, it's it, it, yeah. He there's there's no there's no reason for him to hang around at UVA given the the situation. Yeah, it, smart move, disappointing yep. move, but but wish him nothing, nothing but the best moving forward. And and I know he's going to do a great job. So we talked a little bit off air about the only program that probably perceived this worse than we did was tech because (laughs) now you're going to have Marcus Hagans really working that tidewater area, the whole state. I got to preface that with, um, yes, we we've talked about this, but just to remind, remind people here, tech is pissed uh, at us to be well, honest. Te- tech is pissed because in this year's recruiting class of the top 10 players in Virginia, Six went to Penn State. Um, Marcus Hagens uh, recruits the seven five seven and in Virginia in general uh, pretty well, um, and and so one of those ten went to Virginia. None of them went to Virginia Tech. Um, yeah, uh, you know the the. So we're upset that Marcus is leaving because he's going to go up there. He's he's offensive recruiting coordinator for Penn State in addition to what his wide receiver job. But they already own Virginia from the high school recruiting standpoint. They can't own it anymore. Um, that doesn't hurt us. That hurts Virginia Tech because Virginia Tech made some inroads. They had six of the top 50 this year. We only had one of the top 50 this year. So um, they that top 10 guy, but we only had one of the top 50. Um, this, this, you know, Brent Pry should be pissed at us right now. 
Yeah, we cost them a home football game, and now this. I mean, it just <laughs> it just keeps getting worse for the Hokies. And uh, and you got to think that Mark. There's a lot of things that's going to fall into place for Marcus there. I'm sure the NIL deals are a lot sweeter at Penn State. Um, um, obviously, they're not having any trouble getting athletes from seven five seven into Penn State. Uh, so there's no real academic barriers for Marcus Higgins. Um, I'm just wondering why it took Marcus this long to, 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 to leave. Well, because I mean, this long, like after the, after the season is over or this long in terms of the years of his career, both. Um, I think in terms of years of his career under Bronco Mendenhall, his trajectory was going pretty well. Um, He, you know, he had, he had a good thing going. He was taking guys who weren't recruited necessarily as, NFL prospects and turning them into NFL prospects. Um, he stayed on one year too long, but who would have foreseen the train wreck that the offense became under Des Kitchings in 2020, 2022? I, I did not. I don't, I don't know that many people did. Tony Elliott couldn't have because he wouldn't have hired the guy if that's the case. He kept him on for some reason. So you know, if I'm, if I'm Marcus, he's only, again, he's only 40 years old. So he doesn't need to rush and go find other jobs. Um, so in terms of this postseason or this off season, I guess we should say um, the rush was just, all right, uh, let's look around and see what's out there. And it just turns out that a damn good job was open. Penn State, he did, he's not leaving for, you know, I had one person email me uh, who wasn't negative about the column that I wrote, but still this, why, why is he making this move? It's a lateral move, but it, lateral move in the, in the sense that he's a wide receivers coach at Penn State, like he was a wide receivers coach at Virginia. Yes, he's the same position coach. This ain't a lateral move. It's a huge step up for him to go to a Power 5, perennial Big Ten, and national championship contender. This is a huge step forward for him career-wise. Yeah, it's not a lateral move in any in any capacity as far as I'm concerned. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. see how. You know, there, so if we, we beat on a football team a lot. So if there is anything positive, I had someone, a friend of ours, po- point this out, is that, there are a lot of former alumni that are really starting to get invested in the program. I'll mention a couple. Terry Kirby. Um, 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 Heath Miller. Okay. Getting getting involved now in, in not, not necessarily coaching, but just investing in the program. Well, Terry uh, Kirby's son is, is, is going to play at Virginia this year. Um, His the, son's a tight end recruit, so. And, and the, the question was, when does that start paying dividends? And when does Chris Slade start paying dividends? And I'm thinking, well, you know, everybody's thinking Chris Slade, okay, he's got the connections to the 757. That's where he's from. He's still, he moved, he, he lived in Atlanta for a long time. But is it fair to think that Chris is just going to go back to Atlanta and start plucking away players that maybe slip between the cracks from, from Georgia and the SEC teams, because there are a lot of programs in that part of the country that are miles ahead of UVA that aren't in the Southeast conference. I don't know that this is anybody's fault. So I'm not going to fault Chris Slade for not having any more success than anyone else on the staff at recruiting. I think that the, I mean, kids want to go somewhere where they think they have a chance to be developed and have a chance to win. And there's nothing about the 2022 season that's clearly spoke out to high school recruits and, and also transfer portal recruits um, to say, I want to go there because I'll get better and I'll, and I'll win. 
um, you know, the 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 and, and not counting certainly not nothing about November 13th up until November 12th. Um, there was nothing that said to to, to possible to possible recruits of, of either high school or college age. Let's go to Virginia, and that, that's going to be this, the place we need to go. The kind of kids you're get, that Virginia is getting off of both the transfer portal and off, out of the preps are kids whose best offer is Virginia. We're not beating other schools um, for top talents, and so we're competing with the Max and the Sun Belts and FCS schools. And if you're if if your roster's made up of guys who were going to go to Mac and Sun Belt and FCS schools, guess what level of program you are? You're a Mac or FCS uh, or Sun Belt level program. So playing um, playing an ACC schedule, and, and so that's not a knock at all on Chris Slade. I don't I don't care if you're Jesus Christ right now recruiting for Virginia football. If the head coach is Tony Elliott and the offense is under Des Kitchings, you're not going to get any offensive talents worth anything to want to come and play football there. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not saying I wasn't, I wasn't knocking Chris because he's only been here a year. And, no, no, and I, you weren't knocking him. I, I, me saying your question was, um, when does that pay dividends? I don't think it can pay dividends as long as the current head coach has the offensive coordinator in place and his, the current head coach's level of arrogance about here's how I'm going to do things. I don't think that Chris Slade, Terry Kirby, Heath Miller can fix this. Um, I think it's. It, I think it's. It's. It's where it is. They. They can try all they want. I don't think they can fix it. No, you're. You're probably right. Um, as far as recruiting, if if we if Chris does have success recruiting Atlanta, recruiting seven five seven, I don't think it's beating out Georgia and SEC teams for four and five star players. I think it's just maybe beating out Georgia tech for three and four star players. We're yeah, like that. We've got a, a, we're back to where we were in the George Welsh era and probably always, we've always been here, but we, we you know, recruiting guys that are diamonds in the rough and then making them better with our de- skill development at, at uh, when they get there. The problem with that is Des Kitchings, the offensive coordinator was handed a record setting quarterback and turned him into a schlub. And yeah. so uh, we don't have a track record. It's only one year, but we don't have a track record of turning uh, guys into better players with this current co- coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball. And so, you know, defensively, yeah, they, 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 they were great. John Rosinski and his side were, were, were solid, but it's, it's, a, it's a three-sided game. And um, on two sides, special teams and, and offense, we're, we're not even FCS level right now. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tall mountain we're trying to we're trying. It's not after mountain either. Think Mount Rainier. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, really, it's not it, a little bunny hill. It's, it's no, uh, it's, it's not the little close. little hill going over sixty four over Ivy. It's this is a major mountain, and, and we both love UVA football. I hope you know. I'm, I'm hope that somehow. The path for Tony to be successful is clearly he's going to have to take this quarterback from from Monmouth, Monmouth yeah. and turn him into a serviceable ACC quarterback. Uh, some of the offensive line portal players are going to have to uh, – the offensive line is going to have to play much better than the 
the offensive line, the Pats work offensive line we did last year. If he if he proves that he can develop players, then maybe that's his path. But there's no evidence that he that he's that he's going to be able to do that. And if his if his record is what we project it might be, he might not have time to develop players because if with the pressure of that eighty million dollar football ops center opening in twenty twenty four. Um, the people who donated the money to make that possible are not going to want to have a two and 10 football team in there every year. And so if, if he's got two years, of, no, he three and seven this year, if he has another year like that next year, and then 2024 plays out that way, maybe he makes it into 2024. If he's, if he has another two or three or four win season in 2024, he doesn't make it out of 2024. Um, and so fair or not, the pressure that comes with being the guy that gets to play in the new football practice palace um, is the same pressure that Dave Lato was under when Dave Lato took over the basketball program, was handed the keys of JPJ, and lost to Liberty at home uh, at the start of his fourth year. You and played in CBI the year before that. Played games on Wednesday afternoon at two o'clock in the CBI. Yeah, yeah, if 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 you're given all the resources that Tony Elliott's being given. And you can't win games. I don't. You don't earn the right to develop players fourth and fifth year. Right, and and I think having some of this, some of these alumni that that were successful that know what it takes. I mean, you're talking Chris Slade, Terry Kirby, Heath Miller, um, Charlie McDaniel. These guys know that you can have strong academics and be a representative football team. You Maybe you don't go to the college football playoffs, but what realistic UVA fan is expecting that? Right. We're, we're talking about teams that can consistently win seven, eight, nine games a year, can, can consistently beat Virginia Tech. Um, that's all we're asking for. And I think these this new blood that's coming back into the program that believes in the program is, is what – is going to make this program successful maybe three to four years from now. I think I think getting um, UVA people in charge of UVA athletics will be part of that. And and I, that's a, that's me digging at Carla Williams, but um, you well, know that's what I, it's going to take. I think it's going to have it's going to take someone that bleeds orange and blue. Isn't just I mean you know Carla's here. Maybe I'm maybe I'm casting aspersions, but I you know I, I don't know that that she takes it as personally as we do. And I say we being, I mean, I'm an alum, uh, you know, you might as well be an alum. The football guys who, who broke bones on that football field are, are guys who invested in this. Um, we take it personally. Uh, it's, this isn't an experiment for us. This is not just uh, an exercise and let's go play football games on Saturday in front of 30,000 people. This is, this is something that makes or breaks our weekend. It makes our makes and breaks our week. It's, it's, and it's the players out there are practicing and, and, and doing everything that they can do. Um, they deserve better than what they're getting. Um, and well, so, hey, Chris, you know, there's a lot of people that make that have a livelihood around UVA football. Well, that's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, business wise, right, right? This is this is this is our livelihood to some extent. Well, and, I mean, but think about the businesses in Charlottesville that used to have oh, sixty thousand. Sixty thousand people used to be in towns on Fridays and Saturdays, and now there's thirty thousand people. Uh, and I know and some of those business owners that are lamenting the fact that they don't that they don't have a full house on Friday nights at their restaurants at their five-star restaurants, not to yeah. mention names, great steakhouses, not to mention names, <laughs> yeah. that we don't have the business here anymore because we don't have, when you take a, a stadium at seat 60 and you have it, you don't have that much, you don't have, you have that fewer 
amount of people that can have that disposable income that can come into town early, that can spend money in great restaurants, it can stay in really nice hotels. And so there's a lot of people affected by the success of UVA football. And to hear about some of the alumni that are now coming back in, really starting to invest in their time in the program, that to me is very encouraging. It's encouraging. It's, it's not going to have an – I mean, I don't think it's going to have an impact in the immediate term. But, yes, if it moves us in the direction where we need to be in three, four, five years, it's very positive. So I'll, I, will, I will grant you that. Um, and I hope – this is I'll, I'll conclude this way because I think we're bumping up. We probably bumped past our time. Um, I will say that I hope every Saturday when I go to a game that I'm wrong, that that that, you know, I, I sit there, uh, whether I'm in the stadium or, or you know, some of the times I'm not in the stadium. My heart is pounding hard because I want I, I'm as nervous as a fan as anybody out there listening into us, watching us right now. Um, I want that. I, I want the good guys to win as much or, as or more than you do. Um, I don't want to be right about this. So um, I I don't glee in any of this. Um, and and so you know there I've seen some comments on Facebook. You know oh, you know I, I'm I'm all negative and everything else. No, my God, I'm just being honest that I I don't like where things are going and it's not going to get better. But I hope I'm wrong. I would love Tony Yale to be successful because if he's not successful, we got to hire somebody else in three or four years. And it's going to take that guy three or four years to get as good. And I'm getting older. I don't want to keep, I don't want to spend the next 10 years of my life watching really, really bad football. Yeah. And, I, and this is a topic for another podcast down the road, but Carla Williams is probably not going to be the person charged with hiring a new football coach. If that ends up being the case, right. If so, that ends up being the case. So I think it's obvious there's, I've never wanted to be wrong about something more than this. That's right. That's right. I mean, we're we're on the same boat there. We're telling we're being detached journalists telling you what we see, but then there's the part of us that doesn't like what we see. <laughs> it doesn't want to, to be true. But we want to be honest. But we have to be honest. That's right. That's right. We're not doing our job if we're not honest. And and unfortunately, not too many people in the Virginia media are 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 either honest. Or they just can't see it. But whatever the case may be, we are, and we hope we're wrong. So, um, well, Scott, this and, was. And I've been wrong before, so that so it's not going to be something out of the blue if I am wrong. No skin off your nose, right? If if it turns out you're wrong, I hope that I hope I get emails from people in three or four years, and and because Tony Elliott's successful, and they tell me Chris, you were wrong about him. I will say, hey, great, congratulations. You, I'm glad you. I'm glad I was wrong. So, um, because my Saturdays and my falls are a lot better if I'm not right about this. Um, as far as that goes, um, well, Scott, fun discussion, and I hope that our listeners out there got great uh, info out of it. Uh, go to AugustaFreePress.com if you want more from us about UVA sports. Also, Scott's got a little cottage industry going with uh, Baltimore Orioles, Baltimore Ravens talk. So go to AugustaFreePress.com for that. If you got anything from me that you want me to address down the road, email me at Chris at AugustaFreePress.com. <laughs>